0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Russia, daily coronavirus deaths are at their highest ever. But for President Vladimir Putin, the pandemic has proved useful for suffocating dissent. Political opponents are being locked up in record numbers. We take a special look at the state of the opposition, including the young women who are taking up the fight. And in China, today it's Singles Day, an annual excuse for an almighty online spending splurge. This year, it's happening in the midst of a crackdown on the country's tech companies. But will that make any difference? On Tuesday, Lilia Chernysheva, a Russian opposition activist, was arrested in the central city of Ufa. Her offence? Working for opposition leader Alexei Navalny while his organisation was still legal. She faces up to 10 years in prison. The same day, Sergei Zuyev, the 67 year old head of Russia's top liberal university, was taken from house arrest to a prison cell. Mr. Zuyev had just had an operation for a serious heart condition. It was a move thought to be intended to force a false confession in a fabricated case. In Russia, more than 10% of the national budget is spent on internal security. But despite the rising number of arrests, people continue to stand up to President Vladimir Putin's increasingly repressive machine.
1: Repression in Russia really has intensified over the past year. The watershed was the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and his subsequent arrest. And since then, repression really has grown in response to also growing uh, discontent and protest.
0: Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia editor.
1: Independent media, human rights activists, journalists are being labelled foreign agents and um, universities are being purged. Now even a sort of a coming out by yourself with a placard is not allowed either.
0: But Vladimir Putin has been in power for many years. Why is oppression in Russia increasing now?
1: Yes, you're right, Patrick. So Putin has been in power for 21 years now. And although he stayed in the same uh, place with a short interlude as a as a prime minister, Russia itself has changed, and so have his means of hanging on to power. The three fundamental elements of of his power, of his rule, were economic improvement, propaganda, and repressions, and their relative weight has really changed over the years. So the first, uh, I would say, eight to ten years have been largely about economic development and growth. Things really started to change after the financial crisis in 2008 and particularly after Putin's return to power after that short interlude as, as prime minister. In 2011, 2012, Russia had the first big protests in large cities in Moscow and Petersburg, and uh, Putin responded by rallying people around the flag. That was the time of the annexation of Crimea and the war in Ukraine, and that's when propaganda played a much bigger role than anything else. By that time, the economy was starting to to stall, and so propaganda came to the fore. And now, in the past five, six years. That euphoria that was generated by the annexation of Crimea has largely dissipated, not surprisingly because the economy started to to stagnate and the incomes have been going down. The other big factor was the spread of the internet, particularly the broadband mobile internet, uh, started to erode Putin's monopoly on information. So that was the point at which repression really has uh, become the most important a tool now of sustaining Putin in power.
0: You mentioned Alexei Navalny earlier, Arkady. What's the status of his opposition movement? On the one hand, the
1: organisation itself has been sort of crushed, closed down, declared extremist. But the people who worked for for it, the people who worked for Navalny, who supported them, got his message, and his message was: go out and do what you think you need to do. I don't need to tell you anymore. It's not some sort of a party structure. It's it's a network. And we can see how it works in the actions of his followers, the people who used to work for his regional networks. Sarah Collinson, my colleague who is a series producer for Economist Films, went out to Moscow this summer and she followed for several months this extraordinary brave women as they went out to campaign themselves. Um, You can see this in a new film we're releasing today.
2: I closely followed several young opposition figures over five months in the run-up to the Duma elections in September, and the national story of escalating repressions is reflected in what happens to each of them. Я хотела быть
1: частью тех изменений, быть частью той истории.
2: Violeta Grudna in Murmansk, which is a port city in the northwest of Russia, she ran Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption organization's headquarters in Murmansk. When Navalny's organization was forced to shut down in April, after being declared extremist by the authorities, Violeta decided to stand as an independent opposition candidate in Murmansk. I Violetta was never optimistic that she would win from the beginning, and she faced pressure immediately after announcing she would stand. She was detained multiple times, her volunteers were detained on the streets, her headquarters were broken into and vandalized, bullets were shot through the window. And I think she was psychologically prepared for that level of intimidation. But what came next surprised even her.
1: But in <laughs>
2: got a knock at the door and was physically handed a court order which said that she needed to isolate in a Covid hospital despite having tested negative for the virus and it wasn't clear how long she was going to have to stay there the authorities started to use Covid earlier this year as a tool for political reprisals. People were fined when they attended a rally for not wearing a mask it completely stopped her campaign in its tracks this of course prevented her from being able to submit her candidate registration documents.
1: She actually
2: started volunteering in the hospital because she was healthy and confined to a room with lots of very ill people. She said a lot of people had pneumonia, a lot of people were old. She talked about finding it impossible to sleep because people were coughing so horribly all night. Her campaign manager communicated with her by speaking through the window. She was on the third floor of the COVID hospital, so her campaign manager would shout up to her so at least she could see her face on the third floor. But the turning point for her, she said, was that the staff in the hospital started to ignore her and she started to feel like she needed to do something more radical. She declared hunger strike, Her hunger strike lasted eight days. Violetta talked about hunger strike being torture, and she, as it went on, just became completely exhausted and eventually could no longer get out of bed.
1: So on the eighth day of her hunger strike,
2: she was suddenly allowed to take a COVID test, which came back negative, and she was allowed to leave the hospital. And she found herself with a window to finally submit her candidate registration documents. Against all the odds, she managed to register as a candidate. And for 12 hours, she was officially a candidate. The next day, she was called into the Election Commission again, and she was read a statement from the Ministry of Justice, which said that because of her involvement with extremist activities, she would not be allowed to stand, and she was removed as a candidate. (laughs) She came out of the Election Commission giving a really powerful monologue about the agony of Putin's regime. She was angry, she said, You know, out of fear, he simply lost his mind, so afraid of losing his place. He simply eliminates anyone who poses even the slightest threat to his regime. Violetta doesn't have many options at the moment. There's no options for her in politics. There's no options for her in Navalny's team, which has been extinguished. She has several criminal cases hanging over her and the risks increase with every day that she stays in Russia. So, like so many others, she feels it's time to leave. Yeah. You know, I witnessed Violetta's incredible resilience and she's got the ability to bring humor to the darkest of situations. But the last time I went to Murmansk to visit her, I think by at that point the constant pressure from the authorities had started to take its toll her state of mind had really altered she talked about a creeping numbing desperation с рабочими с многими лишениями
1: что за противная вода Now сейчас я
2: сломлена Violetta's story charts a grim new phase of repression in Russia and it shows the lengths the authorities will go to to eliminate any dissent. But despite the hardships that she and others have endured, they firmly believe that their defiance could sow the seeds for change in the future.
0: Arkady, how typical is Violetta's story?
1: Violetta's story... Patrick is typical in a sense of harassment by the authorities. It's typical also in a sense of her determination to continue with with her politics and to follow Navalny's advice, which was, I'm not afraid, don't you be afraid either. She's less typical in a sense that she, so far, and let's hope this may this long continue, she escaped
0: a long arrest. So, Arkady... Is repression working? Yes, repression
1: is working and fear is spreading and more than half of Russian population now live in fear of the state. For ordinary people living in Russia today, who actually live in, in relative comfort, I mean, certainly relative to the early 1990s, they may not like Putin, but they're not desperate. They still have quite a lot to lose. In their mind, it's all very good for Navalny to say, don't be afraid. It's all very good for somebody like Violeta Grudina to say, don't be afraid. But people are afraid. And you can't blame them for that. The level of repression has gone up. But the problem with repressions is that uh, repressions can only go up. The repressive machine doesn't have a reverse gear. It has to go up. It has to escalate. And as it escalates, it also engulfs large parts of Russian elite nobody is untouchable, everybody is in the line of danger. And it's this repressive machine, more than the protests themselves, that I think actually are going to destabilise Russian political system. How and when it ends, we don't know. I don't think it can outlast Putin, but it can certainly last as long as he is
0: alive. Arkady, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Patrick. If you're in the UK, you can watch Sarah's film, Fearless, The Women Taking on Putin, a co-production of The Economist and hard cash productions for ITV at 10.45 tonight. If you miss it, you can still stream it at itv.com. And for more of The Economist's Russia coverage, you can head to economist.com slash Russia film.
2: In China
0: last night, television presenters dressed in formal wear built up the tension. Once the clock ticked past midnight, millions of shoppers began clicking themselves into a frenzy of consumer excess. Today is Singles Day, China's answer to Black Friday. Over the 24 hours, the billions of dollars will be spent online. But for Alibaba, the tech giant that first fueled the splurge, this year is
3: proving a little different. Singles Day has not always been about shopping. University students have been celebrating this day since the mid-90s. Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor. In Chinese, it's called guan guan jie. Uh, guan means a bear stick. And it also means a single person. And so this was a holiday where single people would get together and uh, exchange gifts on November 11th. Of course, November 11th, referencing 1111 and looking kind of like several single sticks. So, Don, how did this date evolve into a huge day for online shopping? An Alibaba executive noticed that people were celebrating this day as an unofficial holiday. Alibaba, of course, is the huge e-commerce group that has several different online shopping platforms. So what they did was in 2009, they tried to get this going as kind of like an answer to America's Black Friday, where people go out and shop after Thanksgiving. What they did was they started having the merchants on Taobao, which is one of the online shopping platforms that is controlled by Alibaba, you know, they, they had these merchants offer up discounts and they tried to attract people to come on and spend more than they usually would. Um, the result has been stunning. I mean, over the past uh, decade or so, the amount that people have been spending on this day is just mind-boggling and it outpaces any other single shopping day on the planet. I mean, I, I think quite... Possibly, you could say that Alibaba has created the most materialistic day on Earth in some ways. So just to give you a sense of the volume of shopping that's going on here, in 2020, people bought more than $78 billion worth of goods just off of Alibaba platforms. And of course, other companies have tried to get in on this, so there's lots of shopping going on. You know, the full scale to the shopping I don't think is really quite known, but it's vast. And can we expect much of the same this time around? A lot has changed for China's tech companies over the past year. So starting just about a year ago, regulators in China began to crack down on many of China's tech companies. At the heart of that was Jack Ma, who's the co-founder of Alibaba. Some might recall that his... IPO of Ant Financial, which is kind of the payments and financials affiliate of Alibaba, that IPO was canceled in early November. And this kind of kicked off a wave of internet regulation strengthening that goes on really until this day. What that has meant for a company like Alibaba and its singles days, it's a little bit hard to say. I mean, Alibaba was handed a huge fine in April. It was a record $2.8 billion fine. And it's possible that some of these new regulations that they're subject to, such as they can't target shoppers in the same way that they were in the past on price, you know, that that could have some impact. But um, there's another concept that has been prominent in China over the past couple months. It's often referred to as common prosperity. So this is kind of a core policy initiative of President Xi Jinping. There's lots of facets to it, but it's kind of an attempt to make China a more equitable society. So some people have questioned whether or not this will take some of the whiz-bang out of the Singles Day event So, how might the nature of Singles Day change? So, in the past, Alibaba has hosted a big party. Alibaba has brought in stars such as Nicole Kidman and Pharrell Williams um, to these events. And, you know, they've been hugely successful. And of course, Jack Ma has always appeared on stage, often dressed in crazy outfits. I don't expect to see those types of things this year. I mean, for one, COVID is toning things down in China a little bit, you know, experts seem to think that at least on the consumption side of things, um, you probably will still see uh, record sales this year. One of the reasons for that is, you know, online shopping and this type of consumption is actually very important for China's economy. And, you know, the Chinese government has absolutely no intention of derailing that type of activity. Unless things go horribly wrong, I would expect another record-setting singles day this year. Don, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow.